Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 92. Before we get to our interview, here is another segment of novel confessions and the update about how my own writing project, my own novel is going. I had a couple of things happen in the last couple of weeks that I thought would be useful to share. The first of which being that sometimes when you're in the thick of writing a project, significant changes happen and jump out at you. So I have been working on my book for about a year and a half and have been through a couple of workshops sharing ideas. And something happened as I was on a big burst of writing halfway through January, where I realized a couple of bits of feedback that I had gotten from my my fellow writers who I really respect had been percolating and kind of bubbling in there and giving me some thoughts about how I how I might proceed or things that weren't quite gelling. And then I had a big aha moment after a couple of weeks of big writing weeks, getting a lot of words down and realized what needed to change. And it was the fundamental makeup of the two main characters. Um, One of them was sort of passive and under the influence of the other. And the motivation for it wasn't working. And I realized a way that it would work. And it suddenly felt like, oh, I now know who this person is. So that part was really exciting. The part that I want to talk about is the fact that sometimes when this happens partway through and you've written 30, 40, 50% of your first draft, there is this conundrum that comes up, which is, do I press on with this new knowledge or do I go back to the beginning and start over? And right from the beginning, knowing what I now know about these characters. And that created this phenomenon, which I will call the freeze, which pretty much possessed me the second half of January and the beginning of February, which was, which is the more effective choice to take? Um, As somebody who could get caught in the revising forever mode and never getting to the end of the book, my natural inclination was just to continue knowing that there will be another draft no matter what, and that that would be the time to change it. But I'm very interested in what all of you think, that when you've gotten to a stuck point in a draft and thought, I realize there have to be some pretty significant structural changes, do you proceed and go to the end of the draft, knowing that you'll revise in the second draft? Or do you go back to the beginning and write it knowing the plot lines 
pretty clearly, but having this new insight, which seems to make everything flow more easily. I, for the moment, am proceeding with option A, which is right through to the end of the draft, knowing that I'll go again. But um, in my my novel group that meets together a couple of times a month, I did get a pretty convincing case from one member that it would probably go really quickly if I went with option B and just rewrote from the beginning, and then it might actually feel really great that everything was clicking into place. So I'm very interested in what everybody thinks about this. I'm going to post a thread on the show's Facebook page, and you could also leave comments in the show notes post for this episode, which you can find at secretlibrarypodcast.com. So please share your thoughts. I would love to hear. And now that I have sort of dealt with the freeze and dealt with the either or kind of conundrum, I'm able to get back into writing and go forward. So I'm interested in both what you would do in this situation and what things cause you to get stuck and where you might feel the freeze. Leave comments below or we'll have a post, um, a thread on the Facebook page as well. I'm interested to hear what you think. Okay, let's get on with the episode. I am so excited to have Benjamin Percy on the show today. He has been mentioned on the show numerous times um, in reference to his book, Thrill Me, but I really wanted to have him on and talk to him directly because when you keep mentioning a person over and over again on a show, it seems fair that they get to speak for themselves. So for those of you who don't know him, Benjamin Percy is the author of four novels, the most recent being The Dark Net, which came out in 2017. He also has written The Deadlands, Red Moon, The Wilding, as well as two books of short stories, Refresh, Refresh, and The Language of Elk. He's uh, the author of the craft book, which I just mentioned, Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction, which was published by Grey Wolf in 2016. And was first introduced to me in my own novel writing workshop, and I know it is widely taught for good reason. In addition, he broke into comics in 2014 with a two-issue Batman story for Detective Comics, and he now writes the Green Arrow and Teen Titans series at DC Comics, as well as James Bond at Dynamite Entertainment. His fiction and nonfiction have been read on national public radio, performed at Symphony Space, and published by Esquire, GQ, Time, Men's Journal, Outside, The Wall Street Journal, The Paris Review, McSweeney's, Plowshares, Glimmer Train, and Tin House. Amazing. His honors include a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Whiting Writers Award, two Pushcart Prizes, the Plimpton Prize, and inclusion in Best American Short Stories and Best American Comics. His story, Refresh, Refresh, was included in 100 Years of the Best American Short Stories. He's a member of the WGA Screenwriters Guild and has sold scripts to Fox and Stars. And he currently has several film and TV projects in development. He has also taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop. So as you can see, Ben has quite a lot to share about the craft of writing from many different perspectives. And we got into fiction, nonfiction, writing craft, how he got into comics and how that has influenced his writing. And the other thing which I was really excited by and we discussed after the close of the episode is I had no idea that Ben had an incredible narrator's voice. And I was very sad to hear that he has only done the audio version of one of his books and did not enjoy the process. So if you were are, are taken by his incredible narrating voice um, and hope that he will immediately start a podcast or start 
narrating audiobooks as I was the moment he started speaking when we were recording. Um, I'm sorry to say that you may only hear him on other podcasts or this one and the one book that he has narrated himself. So with that said, I'm very excited to give you Ben Percy. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I, as we were saying before we started recording, I keep referring to your book, Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction, in the show. And after I did it like the second or third time, I thought, you know what? I think it might be time to have the actual Ben Percy on to talk about the concepts in this book. Um, There's this great scene in Annie Hall, the like, you know, the 70s Woody Allen movie, where there is this professor in line in a movie and Woody Allen's like several people behind him. And he's pontificating on and on about this one particular filmmaker's work. And this is what he's like, and this is what he's doing. And, and then suddenly the actual filmmaker appears from the side of the screen and says, you know, nothing of my work. That is absolutely not what I'm trying to do. (laughs) So I was, I think I was starting to get worried that you would just materialize in the middle of the podcast and be like, that's actually not what I meant when you're talking about my book. The screen would, would rip open and my, my face would emerge. That would be amazing. Maybe you should write a book about that. I think that's a really good horror topic. <laughs> like, just take it in a totally different direction. I used to harass my students by saying that, you know, I was going to keep hammering home the same points over and over so that eventually, years from now, when they were at the keyboard and they made some error, in my judgment anyway, that the screen would open up and I would berate them and say, you know, don't do that. So someone needs to develop that, that software. I think you should just write a book about somebody doing that. I mean, it's sort of like a misery or something where, you know, (laughs) next craft book, don't do that. I think it's a great title. Well, what were they doing? What was the most frequent offender that caused you to want to stick your head out of the book? Oh, the page. All, you know, I have all my micro complaints, um, some of which appear and thrill me. One of which is, uh, you know, feckless pondering that idea that, you know, people get caught up in, uh, you know, the interior world of the character and sort of forget that they have to move the story forward. That's one of the cardinal sins of literary fiction. It absolutely is. I'm stuck in that right now. Um, in my own writing process. So how do you kind of beat your students out of, I don't know if there's probably a kinder way to do it, but I feel like I'm getting to that point with myself where I'm like, I can't have one more scene where this person is just wandering around thinking about things and nothing happens. So how I I think the thing that, that really excited me about thrill me was the fact that you can pull inspiration from other genres that the idea of, this is the one that I keep talking about with people, is that you take the best parts of, say, suspense or crime or horror or other genres, and also the character development of literary fiction, and you put them together, and then you get something really exciting. So how have you seen your students struggle with this? And have you seen any of them escape? And if so, how do they do it? Uh, Well, these thoughts all clarified uh, after I already stepped away from the classroom. So I haven't necessarily been able to, to witness firsthand, uh, 
you know, my fire on brimstone have any sort of effect <laughs> on someone. Maybe but, your your avatar that's popping out of their screens is witnessing right. it. It would be great if it could send those messages back to you. But I would say that I am uh, yeah. the principal victim of 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 these faults that that I was sort of working through my own trajectory and working through my own failings. And that's how I was able to articulate um, some of these theories about fiction and that I grew up on genre fiction. I grew up obsessed with, uh, you know, barbarians with woolly underpants and talking dragons and fiery swords and robots with laser eyes and apocalyptic visions of the future. And uh, when I stepped into my first creative writing classroom, that's what I was planning to write. I, you know, I had my barbarian with woolly underpants story all already and was promptly told that there would be no genre fiction in this classroom. Um, you know, the, the professor essentially had the same delivery as Professor Snape. Um, <laughs> I raised my hand after he walked us through the syllabus and he said, yes. Um, you know, I said, well, what do you mean by this whole no genre thing? And he settled his dead gaze upon me and said, you know, I mean, no dragons, no vampires, no barbarians with really underpants, and so on. Uh, and so I, my response very earnestly was, what else is there? Um, right. Because I, I had really read no literary fiction. I had no idea who Raymond Carver was. I had no idea who Flannery O'Connor was. I had never read uh, Alice Monroe or Sherman Alexie or James Baldwin and soon remedied that. And so I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm not complaining about genre fiction. It's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. But every semester I was told the same thing. I was told no genre. And it was a very strict taxonomy, like anything that had something fantastical in it that wasn't written by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the ultimate insult, too, for any short story from a professor would be that it was plotted. Plot was a filthy word. Um, and so for the next four, five, six years, I read almost exclusively literary fiction. But I never fell out of love with, with genre fiction. I got to that point where I was... Um, I was... You know, I was handing off books to my then girlfriend, now wife, and she would look at them and look at all of the uh, notes written in the margins that corralled the pages like barbed wire. And she would push the book back to me and said that I took the fun out of reading. And I think there was some that truth. Is, that is harsh. But yeah, it was just, you know, I think everybody goes through a MFA program or is in too many creative writing workshops, maybe gets to this point where you're just so caught up in the analytical experience that you lose touch with the emotional, um, that you're observing it on a higher, that higher plane, um, that plane of composition. And you forget in a way that people read by and large for escapism. Uh, they want to, you know, be dragged down the rabbit hole. Um, and it is possible to do both. It is possible to write something that it is both compulsively readable and artfully told. And there's nothing wrong with writers like Donald Barthelme or 
Ben Marcus or Joy Williams or Lydia Davis. I love their work. Um, but they are, they are writing for people on the same plane as them. They, and, and I think that the trap of a lot of MFA programs, and I do it, I will admit that the tide is shifting right now. Um, but I think the trap of a lot of MFA programs is that you, you know, they forget that there are that 98.7% of readers, um, you know, are looking to be transported by more than language and metaphor. And there is a way to straddle both worlds as Margaret Atwood, who's sort of like the author of this time, uh, has proven so well. Um, and other authors, you know, uh, I'll herald as well. Um, Susanna Clark, who's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is one of my, my favorites or Kate Atkinson life after life or Peter Straub or Dennis Lehane or Larry McMurtry. Um, you know, that they are both literary and genre, neither fish nor fowl. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from them in the way that they're always thinking about pressing the story forward. And they're thinking about the mechanics of plot, everything clicking together while also writing sentences that, you know, make my knees melt. <laughs> yes, knees melting sentences is always a delicious thing to find as a reader. And I think the illusion is that they wrote those the first time, that they just sort of sat down and like dashed off these incredible sentences. When I don't know, I don't think those come in the first draft. Do no. you? Well, I mean, not for me, for sure. I'm, no, definitely not for me even, either. Even in my final draft, I have plenty of lousy sentences that, you know, that's the, one of the reasons that I, I don't I, I edit even when I'm reading to a crowd. Like, really? I publish book and I'm in a bookstore and I'm on tour and, you know, I'm looking over the lines like, oh, why did I use that ridiculous metaphor or uh, that whole adverbial slot should have been nixed or, or whatever. So, you know, even a year after I've copy edited a manuscript, I'm like, why did I do that? Um, but yeah, for me, I'm always editing. I'm in this, you know, every day I sit down at the keyboard, I generally start by polishing what I wrote the day before so that hopefully by the time I, you know, hand it into my agent or editor, you know, it's, it's as good as, as I can make it. I've sort of been turned over and over and over and over again and polished like a stone in a river. Yeah. So you seem to have, as far as I can tell, reached this point of the intersection because the fact that your most, most recent book, The Dark Net, is a horror, and you've also had short stories published by Grey Wolf and that you're you're hanging out in that middle. So are you finding it let me see if I can articulate this well. You started out, you know, really in love with the with the woolly underpants era. And then MFA kind of creative writing education pulled you all the way over to the, you know, you've taken the fun out of reading. So having come back to the middle where do you find that your inspiration comes from? Is there, um, is it still on the woolly underpants side that you're like, Ooh, this is really going to grab them with an idea or is there a situation or is it both? 
Well, I mean, woolly underpants are very comfortable. But <laughs> I, you I'm, should start a shop, you know. <laughs> you should just put it on your author site. And by the way, check out my, my Etsy shop with um, woolly underpants where you can really oh, experience um, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I try to diversify my reading as best I can because I don't want to be caught in a rut. Um, you know, I, I will read something written a hundred years ago and I'll read something poppy on the bestseller list published last month. I'll read across gender and you know sexual orientation and religious and uh political boundaries as best i can i'll read poetry and i'll read memoir and i'll read craft books and i'll read historical fiction and i'll read um you know some i'm always looking to like break my brain mm. uh, and i'm always looking for tricks you know like if I read a scene that makes me feel uh, afraid or a scene that makes me feel emotionally devastated or a scene that makes me feel breathless, I will typically pause and then and reflect and then go back and read it again and then read it again and then read it again. Um, and this is, you know, what my wife was talking about where she says I take the fun out of reading. But <laughs> I, I, I do, I have managed to sort of turn off that switch where I'm not always doing this. I'm able to, you know, sort of power through and not overanalyze every single line. But when I come to a moment that is particularly, I feel like, uh, triumphant in getting past my, my many gar guards and, and finding its way you know, into my heart. Um, that's when I really want to pay attention and I break down scenes. I'll, I do the same thing with film. I'll watch a film and if I'm struck by it, I will rewatch it. And sometimes I'll rewatch just scenes, set pieces, uh, or I'll break down the screenplay or I'll watch the director's commentary as the movie plays. Um, and in this, for this reason, I am not a prolific consumer of narrative. Um, I read fewer books than I should in a year because I spend so long in every book that I read. I've mm. become an incredibly slow reader. Um, so I, you know, I will read Conan the Destroyer, um, but I will also read as I, I just finished the remains of the day, and it's, it's one of the most beautiful books I've it's ever read. So good. Yeah. yeah. So uh, next up is. Um, uh, Pride and Prejudice, which I'm ashamed to have never read. Oh, so, really? That's so exciting! Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of kind of a fussy English uh, bent lately. Um, my Downton Abbey has, you know, polluted my mind with the need for more fussy butlers. And I know. I really, I had a hard time with that show ending. Such. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, I'm I'm not just reading stuff that's like me, right? Um, that that would that would be boring. And that would be, I don't know. I, I feel like it's really easy to flatline. And I look at certain authors and I don't want to berate anyone, but they keep writing the same book over and over again. And I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. 
I think that's exciting too, because then you can bring elements of what you've been reading and it starts to, I mean, Pride and Prejudice is a tricky album, a tricky example, because to think, how could you bring Pride and Prejudice into horror? Then you get Pride and Prejudice and zombies, but I don't mean it like that. It's more, how can you bring that level of, I guess, social observation or you yeah, know, yeah. precision about class and where someone is into a completely different genre. I think that becomes well, a really fascinating puzzle. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what Susanna Clark did with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Um, it's one of my favorite books, but also just a fantastic fantasy epic. And yeah. it is also a novel of manners. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> in, in- that's one of the reasons I need to read Pride and Prejudice is in part to sort of inform my understanding of of Jonathan Strange. Hmm. Yeah, that one is fascinating. This sort of, are you in the club? Are you out of the club? What does the club mean? All of these elements. At the same time that it's, you know, all about magic. It isn't primarily about magic, I don't think, in the end. Pride and Prejudice and Magic. (laughs) pride, Pride and Prejudice and Magic. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Right. I guess Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice and Serial Alien. Killers. The next step. Yes. Oh, yeah. Serial Killers. There's you a body on the in there. I know. I guess that might be um, Midsummer Murders, that, that TV show that's been on for 20-some years. But so how, um, so how did you get to the dark net? Like, where did that idea come from? Uh, Authors are always like, screw you. I don't know. I don't exactly remember where the idea came from. <laughs> but I guess, how did it evolve or or... What was yeah, it that yeah. excited you about that idea when it showed up? Well, I've always been interested in fantasy stories that are bound to the moment, um, that are born out of the zeitgeist, uh, cultural unease. Um, Frankenstein's a good example of this. Yes. So it is born out of the Industrial Revolution and the fear of science and technology and the fear of man playing God. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers is all about McCarthyism and the Red Scare and the fear that the enemy might look just like us and live next door. Um, Godzilla is actually about post-atomic anxieties. Um, There's been a slew of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives ever since 9-11. I mean, apocalyptic stories have always been with us, but the volume really got turned up on on them after 9-11. And that's because, you know, we re- recognized more fully how something can come out of the sky and change everything disastrously in a, in a moment. And there's a lot of things we're, we should be afraid of right now. Um, yes. The lunatic in the White House among them. And I think ch- cybercrime is chief among my fears. Um, so I came across this article in Time Magazine written by Lev Grossman several years ago about Silk Road. And upon reading it, I immediately knew that this is what I wanted to write about. But I was also frustrated by this because I knew there was so much I did not know about the, this world. Mm. so much research ahead of me. Um, and I scammed my way into writing the book. So I used to be a bit of a Luddite, um, you know. Instead of emails, I would send ravens. And instead of Microsoft Word, I used a stone tablet and a chisel. And I needed to, you know, I needed to break down uh, this underworld of cybercrime. So I scanned my way into it by pitching an article. Right. And 
I sent the idea to GQ and <clears throat> they gave it the green light. And the idea was that I would live as a Luddite, uh, cyber centric life for a month. So all of these companies sent me all of their gear and I had, you know, four Apple watches and three Fitbits. Oh my God. I checked the Fitbit once after a day of writing and I had burned 37 calories. Um, I threw it away because it clearly it wasn't working. <laughs> and then I, and then, you know, I, I had Google glass and I had the sound talk technology that allowed me to eavesdrop on someone across a room and so on and so forth. And then I visited the Google campus and rode in a driverless car and spoke with all these frontline researchers and visited Apple and spoke to people at Verizon and on and on and on. I was writing an article, but I was actually using the article to gain access uh, to these experts so that I could write this novel. And oh, brilliant. Anyways, it, you know, slowly, slowly built a, a, a insider insider's vocabulary for this world and uh, just cranked up sort of like the uh, broke through the, the realism of it all. Um, because I started to recognize certain parallels, um, fairy tales and, uh, stories of possession. Um, I mean, if you think about possession, like demonic possession, right. Think about how many times we turn our faces toward a screen in a day, the average person checks their phone 86 times. Um, and that adds up to, many hours a week. Um, think about <clears throat> how every time you're clicking a keyboard or tapping a mouse or swiping a screen, that, that information is feeding into an algorithm, um, sometimes used for commercial reasons, as you know, you've noticed when that particular ad pops up in the corner of your screen that's aimed directly at you, uh, or sometimes used for more nefarious reasons, you know, when in terms of vulnerable data being harvested um, by uh, bots and and by people looking to steal your identity. <clears throat> so I saw some parallels to demonic possession there. And I also was thinking about fairy tales because fairy tales, um, it seems like they're oftentimes about, if you look to the Black Forest of Germany, they're about things that people couldn't make sense of back then. You know, a child dies in a meadow and the story is you know, is, is forged about a, a wolf with great cunning, a wolf with evil intelligence, or a grave is disturbed. And because of poor medical technology at the time, the poor medical practices at the time, the, the person was buried alive, but the myth of vampirism arises from that. And right now there is so much that we don't understand. At this very moment, there are signals ghosting through your body. Um, uh, and at this very moment, maybe, maybe your computer, which you rely upon so heavily, or your phone is glitching slightly, or you hear that special carpenter ant sound, you know, chugging from the guts of the hard drive that makes you wonder, has it already begun? <laughs> is a worm burrowing through this thing right now? Is an online avatar in my name being created in Russia <laughs> at this second? Um, and there's so much that we are reliant upon with our technology, but don't understand. And I feel like this new digital wilderness, this new black forest has risen up all around us. And this book was an attempt to make sense of it. Yeah. I love that. It is also quite freaky. I agree. 
It's like when you think about it, I remember seeing some video a number of years ago about all of these things that could happen with technology, you know, kind of minority port report, kind of like eye scanning and all kinds of like, they're watching you and you're moving around and they're suddenly, you know, the, the government's going to know where you are at any given moment. And there are all these things. And the creepiest part was at the end when, when people said, well, how did this happen? And they said, well, everybody asked for it. And you look at all of the, you know, carrying a phone that has GPS and all of these things in which we think, oh, it's more convenient. It's more convenient. And I certainly do this as much as anyone else. And, and then you think, oh yeah, we did kind of ask for it. Um, and that's really amazing fodder for, for something really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully it hits a nerve and makes everybody, you know, throw away their phones and <laughs> smash tablets over their knees and toss their laptops out their windows and start writing letters and get a bunch of ravens again. That's right. So what did you do with all of it? Did it, did any of it seem cool and then you kept using it or you were like, no, I'm not using any of this afterwards. No, I'm, uh, I am a very cranky hermit. (laughs) I, I absolutely hate technology. Uh, I know that it is made a lot of things easier. I know we're all more connected now. I know that all of this information is available uh, and it's made the world more democratic and that's great. But right now the robots are inside us. (laughs) Like Alexa is listening. That's a little bit creepy. I have to admit, I admit Uh, the, the robots don't need to kick down the door. They're already, they're already here or they're already implanted inside of some of us. You know, pe- there's a company that has implanted chips um, and its employees. There's people who have <clears throat> everything from cochlear implants to, uh, um, to pacemakers right. to insulin that, you know, are Wi-Fi bound. Um, it's... Our phones are like a prosthetic cerebrum. And that idea that you can be biohacked is not far off and that they have recently uh, discovered that you can implant bioware into human malware into DNA. So all of those things scare me, but so do just on a really simple level. um, The psychological reliance on uh, social media. And I think it's, I really feel like it's leading to a mental collapse. Mm. Um, I just read this book, Deep Work, that oh, I totally yeah. drank the right on. And so I'm kind of pulpit banging as a result of that. But no, it's I just feel fun. like it, <clears throat> it's ruining our ability to achieve deep focus, you know, to borrow from that author's uh, taglines. The idea that we're always responding to emails and texts. We're always seeing if somebody's liking our shit on Facebook. And most of the great works of art and most of the great breakthroughs in physics and philosophy and so on, you know, were achieved in isolation. And isolation is, even if you're in the middle of the woods now, impossible to achieve. Right. So with that said, what does your writing process look like? Like, are you actually writing, are you writing by hand or how are you achieving as much of this kind of isolation or separation when you're working as possible? You know, I I feel like my, my superpower was deep focus that like I would be the most boring member of the (laughs) X-Men. 
<laughs> All right, Percy, do your thing. He deep focuses in response to the attack. Not very helpful, but for me. Yeah, but there was that big whole room that was to achieve that. I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, I could be Professor X, sure. I could. Right there, you go. Uh, but the, I feel like I am, and I think the election has had something to do with this. That it's just, and but so is social media, and so is just this information glut that's that's happening right now. There's, there's too much information flowing into my brain and too many emails to respond to and so on. It's, it's, it's been fucking up my deep focus, damn it. Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah been, I know the feeling. I've been railing against this as best as I can. and uh, That book helped quite a bit. That deep, that deep work book helped me recognize things I should have been able to recognize on my own. But I'm trying only to check social media on Wednesdays. In the afternoon, I haven't been totally successful about that, but I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to respond to emails only afternoon. Um, I'm trying to, you know, isolate my habits. I'm trying to leave my phone. Like, if I take the dog for a walk, I don't need my phone with me. If I'm going to the grocery store, I don't need my phone. Um, if I'm walking around the house, I don't need my phone. And... Just you know, these are these are small steps, but they've had they've actually had a very calming impact on me, and uh, I have been better able to sort of lose myself because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that loss of self that happens when you know five hours go by and you look at the screen and somehow you have ten pages in front of you. And you're not sure where they came from. Mm. That's where the that's where the best ore comes from. Absolutely. So you are still writing on a computer. Yeah, I can't. I have. Tr- I write notes uh, by hand, but I have. I, I try to write on on pads, and it just doesn't work. My brain is too far ahead of my my fingers. Yeah, that is that, that's tough. So you read slow, but you write fast. I think that's a good a good way to do it. So anyway, I haven't figured it all out yet. Just, <laughs> well, I think it's important. I mean, I think that people... Old man Percy is mad at technology. That's the message. I, absolutely. I mean, I think it is something that people always talk about. Like, oh, I want to write, but how do I find the time? And yet we have all of these habits of like scrolling on Instagram or looking at Facebook and all of these things that take up all this time. It's not just about like cutting TV because I think people are pretty good about that at this point. Because it's so much cheaper to not have regular TV and you could just, you know, watch Netflix and all of those things. But but there are still all of these little habits that go around being so technologically connected that take away from time that could be spent writing. Or just thinking about your writing. Yes. You know, the thought. I used to just, uh, there's nothing, this is something that's, uh, that I heard once from uh, Anne Lamott. Mm. You know, somebody asked, what does it take to be a writer? And she said, just go for a walk every day. And that's kind of an obnoxious thing to say. But at the same time, there's nothing like a, you know, a walk in the woods that just you break down. Or this could be a time in the gym as well. Uh, But there's something about the time away from the keyboard and just thinking about the writing and pushing sentences around your brain and breaking down plot points. Like so much work gets done then. Um and if you're always just like, oh, I'm bored, I'll take out my phone. Whether you're on the can or at the car wash or on a walk, that you know, that kind of that gets in the way too of of writing. Writing isn't writing isn't typing. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah, there's all of this digesting that has to happen and all of this, oh, wait, what if kind of thoughts that come up. And if there's no room for them, then there's no way to develop the story. So you're also writing, in addition to having written The Dark Net, you've written other novels and you wrote Thrill Me, which I think everyone should read. You also started writing for comics in 2014, which is really fascinating to me. So, I mean, I can see the trajectory from the woolly in underpants to wanting to write for comics, but how did you, how did you get in there? And what has that done for you for writing since then? I was, um, you know, I, I honestly can't remember any novels that I read prior to maybe third or fourth grade. That's when I picked up The Hobbit. That's the first novel I remember reading. Mm. I can remember all the comics that I read. <laughs> uh, my mom would dump me at the end of the grocery aisle. It wasn't even a grocery store. It was a mercantile. That's, you know, we lived out in the boondocks. Right. And she would go up and down the aisles and I would sit there and it was right below a comic spinner rack and I would <clears throat> pull them down and read them while she shopped. And if I was good, I got to take one home. And I still have some of those ragged old copies. Um, and those are really, you know, formative experiences for me when it comes to being enchanted by a narrative and, and just understanding the way stories are broken down. I always wanted to write comics, um, but it took me a long time to break in. And it, I guess it was 2000, yeah, it was 2009. Scott Snyder is a buddy of mine and he wrote this book called Voodoo Heart, which is a collection of short stories that's really fantastic. And I was teaching it and Scott Snyder was teaching my book, Refresh, Refresh. And I was in the Midwest and he was on the East Coast. And, you know, we'd email, we'd talk on the phone. And then he wrote a short story for an anthology called Who Will Save Us Now, which was a prose anthology about superheroes. And he did a reading along with other authors in the anthology at a Barnes & Noble in New York. And they didn't know this, but the edit- some editors from Marvel and DC were there. And afterwards, those editors came up and said, hey, you guys like comics so much, superheroes so much, you should you know pitch some story ideas to us. So Snyder did, and he started to break in. And I was like, dude, I want to <laughs> do that. Show me your scripts. Show me uh, your pitches. Help me study up. And so he generously did share those things. And as a result of that, I wrote up this massive pitch document for a series called Red Moon. And that was rejected by Vertigo and by Dark Horse Comics. Um, And my agent really liked the idea. So she said, you should write this as a novel instead. And I did. And it turned out for the best. That was really my breakout book. I published other books prior to that, but that that was really my breakout. And... I kept pitching and kept pitching and kept pitching. I developed a relationship with the editor at Vertigo, Mark Doyle, as a result of the Red Moon pitch. And we met up for coffee once when I was in New York on book tour. And I probably sent him, I think it was in the neighborhood of 50 pitches. Wow. And they were all rejected. And then finally, I think he was exhausted by me. (laughs) He's like, he's not going to give up. He is not giving up. So he became the head of the back group for people who are non nerds out there. The back group is, you know, all the Batman titles, everything from Nightwing to, to Batman to detective comics. And he <clears throat> uh, said, I've got a two, sh- a two shot opening. That means two issues. What do you got? 
and I'd written, he doesn't know this, but I'd written a screenplay that failed. It had made the rounds in Hollywood and it was about a quarantined airport. It was kind of like die hard mm. airport. And I took out Bruce Willis and put in Bruce Wayne. Nice. And sent him the idea. He's like, great. And that was my first, that was my, I broke in with Batman, which is that ridic- is amazing. Ridiculously lucky. Uh, so I made my debut there, this two shot fall of 2014. And then, uh, in January, I knew that was like a massive platform for me. I knew people would be paying attention to it. So I put everything I had into that storyline. And then in January, I was hanging out with Jeff Schatz, the editor at Grey Wolf, uh, at a bar in Florida. We were both teaching at the Atlantic Center for the Arts um, down in New Smyrna, Florida. And we were at a bar and my phone rang and it was New York. And I was like, huh, I wonder what that is. My agent maybe. And I picked up the phone. It was DC Comics. And they were like, hey, you want to write Green Arrow? Um, so they had read my Batman stuff. They really liked it. And I was on a short list of writers for who would potentially write green arrow. So I had to write up another massive pitch document and I got it. And then from there I got teen Titans. And from there I got James Bond. And now, uh, <clears throat> I'm taking over another series soon, but that I can't talk about, but comics have really consumed a lot of my time and it's fun as hell. And it's, it's great in that it, it's, you know, created new muscle groups in my, in my imagination that I didn't have before. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the other thing that's, that makes it nice is that it is a sort of an antidote to the hermetic lifestyle of a novelist. You know, you write a novel for years and maybe you talk to your editor about it and your agent about it, but otherwise it's this isolated activity. And comics is just, you're, you're on a team. Right. So it's the artist. Sometimes it's a colorist as well. And then the letterer and your editorial team. And you are on the phone or trading emails every single day trying to make the best possible story. So I like that. I've also learned a lot of things that I think have made me a better novelist. Um, and this is subject to a three-hour lecture, so I'll try to be- <laughs> Well, what are, what are the – we could maybe even do a separate one on that, but – what are the highlights of, of how it's made you a better novelist? And then I want to hear about the muscle groups. Oh, well, I mean, they're, uh, they're one and the same. Okay. So the idea, Terrence Hayes, the poet, he talks about how the difference between form poetry and free verse, no, the difference between free verse and form poetry, rather form poetry, I mean, you know, a villanelle or a sonnet. Mm-hmm. The difference is, the same as between breakdancing and breakdancing in a straitjacket. And he says, you know, it's, it's cool if you can break dance, but it's badass if you can just break dance in a straitjacket. <laughs> in other words, there are these restrictions. Right. So in comics, you have 20 pages and you have five to seven scenes. Now a novel, you know, you have a limited amount of time. You know you're supposed to be contributing to plot and character and theme at all times, but you don't really follow that advice because you don't have 20 pages in five to seven scenes. And with the comics, there's no there's no wiggle room. A comic is never 18 pages and it's never 22 pages. It's 20 pages, and you have to accomplish certain things in that in that time period. Um, and there is an A plot, there's a B plot, there's a C plot, and there's a D plot. 
the B plot of one issue becomes the A plot of the next. The C plot of one becomes the B plot of the next. Mm. Like this uh, turnstile of storytelling that you're managing. Um, every it, There's also something to be said about the uh, arrangement of set pieces in a narrative. So the big moments, <clears throat> the moments that are indelible to the reader, in, in a way the moments that justify the story being told at all. Um, <clears throat> they're placed in certain regions of that issue. So an issue usually opens up with a, a dawning mystery. You know, a cliche example of this might be, you know, a wide shot of a graveyard at night, uh, then a medium shot where we zoom in on a tomb and a few gravestones and then a close-up of a grave and a mound is growing and a few cracks are on it. And then the final panel of that page is a hand bursting through. We have to turn the page, right? Yes. And that's the way that pages work uh, in comics. If you are on the right side of a page, so the first page is always, you know, is a page turn. You have to have some sort of mystery seated at the end of that. And that's how... Uh, that's how chapters should work as well. That's certainly how commercial breaks work in television. You know, there's the detectives are in the alley and, uh, their flashlights are swinging back and forth across the piles of trash and they hear a scurrying sound, but it's just a rat. But then the rat seems to be climbing up something. It's a leg and then a torso. And then the flashlights home in on a face and it's not just a dead body. It's the dead body of the star witness in the trial they're working on. Dun, dun. <laughs> you know. And then, you know, commercials. Um, yeah. So that's how, that's how page turns are. The right page turn is in comics. And usually on page four, there is a splash image. And a splash is an image that takes up the entire page. That's what you call a splash. Sometimes there's a double page spread as well, where a single image will take up two pages. It's always on a page turn, right? So you turn that fourth page and it's a splash. And the reason it's a splash is on page four instead of page three is because if you turn a page and on the right side, there's a splash, you won't read the left page. Uh. Your eyes will immediately jump to the splash. So it has to be on the page turn. And it's always connected to something big that's happening. When I say big, it could be emotional. Like it could be the moment, let's say Black Canary and Green Arrow have been on the outs for the past six issues. This is the moment when they finally get back together again and earn each other's trust and respect and, you know, embrace and kiss. That'll be a splash. Uh, or what if it's the moment when uh, some villain who hasn't shown up in Batman for like three years, like the Joker, what if the Joker is finally showing up again? You turn the page, there he is. It's a splash image of, you know, the Joker stepping out of the shadows. Uh, or it could be, and this is always the end of every comic issue. You know, let's say page 19 is Green Arrow is walking into the donut shop. This is a terrible comic, but just, <laughs> he walks into the donut shop. And page 20, you turn the page is the donut shop explodes. Oh, no. That's a terrible cliffhanger. But... The, the splash image is almost always on the last page, and it's an advertisement for the next issue. Right. A better example, something that's actually, you know Green Arrow's going to be back, so that's why it's a bad example. Right. Um, but a better example would be like uh, the end of, there's a Teen Titans issue where Deathstroke, who's the world's greatest assassin, if you didn't, if 
any of the listeners out there are nerdy enough to know this. Uh, Death, the world's greatest assassin. He shoots Kid Flash in the knee. That's the final image. His shotgun is smoking, and Kid Flash is holding his knee, which has just been obliterated. You're That's like, a great clue. What's going to happen? Is he going to be okay? Tied to the central power of the character. Like, and it's emotional as well because Kid Flash is a total screw up. Um, he's doing poorly in school. He's the only thing that's holding him together is being on this team and his superpower is speed. So if Deathstroke takes out his knee, like, what does that mean? Mm. Not just, you know, not just in terms of the adventure that's taking place right now, but like, what does it mean to the emotional core of this character? So that's how you want to end an issue. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm ranting. But the idea is that, you know, I've learned these things about plot mechanics that are so much more explicit and obvious in comics than in novels. Like sometimes I have students, if I'm teaching at Breadloaf or Tin House these days, I'll have them map out a story and panel it as though it were a comic. Mm. What people start to realize is like, okay, panel one, what would that be? Oh, here's what it would be. It would be character A and character B sitting at a table talking. Panel two, character A and character B are at a table talking. <laughs> panel two, panel four, panel five, panel six, panel seven, panel eight, panel nine, panel ten, panel eleven. They're still at the table. Maybe they pour some milk right. or something. Go to the fridge to get another beer, but they're still at the table. You know, by it's page 17 and they finally get up from the table and go to the door and they're putting on their jackets. Page, you know, 20, they're at the bus stop. Like, you really become aware of the sort of vertical and horizontal axes of storytelling. Vertical being what literary writers are more dependent upon, which is, you know, interiority, the emotional well, um, contribution to metaphor, the horizontal axes being plot progression. Right. Yeah. That becomes so much more evident when paneling. Batman can't just be like hanging out in the Batcave. The Batcave is pretty cool, but yeah, that fair enough. He has to leave at some point. Well, I think that is an amazing tip to, I think I may have to try that. Do some, not that I'm the best drawer, so no one is ever going to see them. But I think it is a good idea to think about like what's happening in all these scenes and how do they move together and, and what would it look like visually? I love it. Amazing. Well, I'm going to let you return to your own back cave um, so you can get back to your writing. But I'm so grateful that we had the chance to have this conversation. And thank you so much for weighing in on craft and combination of literary impulse and, and genre fiction and how they all come together. This has been amazing. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.